This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. I already know that, like, you all know this already, but I'm going to tell you anyway. I ran another half marathon yesterday. Yeah. They, um, it's becoming a problem. It's sort of like tattoos. It's sort of like Lay's potato chips. Like, you can't run just one. Uh, it's my second this fall. It's my fifth overall. But one of the things that I've come to love about running is how when everyone steps up to that starting line and enters that chute, right, you're not competing against each other. Because in some sense, like everybody that gathers together for that turkey trot, man, you're all on the same team. You're all on the same team, and you're competing against the weather, which actually yesterday was absolutely gorgeous. It was like 29 degrees, sun was kind of shining, no wind. It was beautiful. Uh, you're running against the weather. You're running. Glad the race was yesterday and not today. Uh, you're running against the course. You're running against the clock. You're running against whatever your goal that you set forth. But, but you're not competing against each other. And not only that, you're not comparing yourself with each other. Like you're each running your own race. And so if someone passes you, when someone passes you, like you congratulate them, you cheer them on, you encourage them. In fact, I, uh, I read an article before I ran my first uh, about some things to expect when you run your first marathon. And it had some helpful tips in there, but I think what the most helpful one was, was don't be discouraged when somebody's grandparent flies past you. Because, you know, like, it could be their 50th race and it's your first. Yeah, they could have been running for decades and you were only running for days. I have an asterisk in my notes here, and that is to let you know that someone's grandmother passed me on two races ago. We were, like, back and forth through most of it, you know, and it got kind of fun. Then with, like, two miles to go, man, she had some other gear I did not have. And she beat me by about two minutes. And I encouraged her afterwards. But see, while we step up to the same starting line and we run the same race, we're each running our own race and running at our own pace. We're striving for different times while headed to the same finish line. And there's a, there's a reason we see this image of a long-distance runner throughout the New Testament, whether it is the beginning of Hebrews 12 where the author writes, let us run with endurance the race set before us. Paul writes about it in his letter to the Corinthians about running to obtain a prize, training with focus, and, and, and running with purpose. And we see it here in the second half of chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because it so accurately describes all that comes with a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. Pursuing Jesus not only for our own good, but for the good of one another and for the glory of God. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going, to see, we're going to see Paul's own personal pursuit of Jesus. And then what I want us to see is how that is the example that we are to follow, that we are to imitate in our own pursuit of Jesus. And so let's take a look at Paul's pursuit of Jesus here, the, the example that we are to follow. He begins in verse 12 saying, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, and uh, it, it kind of feels like we entered into the middle of a conversation there, didn't we? And that's because we did, actually. Uh, all of chapter 3 is really one complete thought. And so think of this more as the second half in a, in a two-part sermon. 
And last week, in case you missed, uh, last week in the first half of chapter three, uh, we saw the importance of of knowing Jesus, uh, of knowing the righteousness that we gain by being found in him. And we saw that that to know Jesus is to know the power of his resurrection, right? The power to bring dead things to life. To know Jesus is, is to share in his suffering, following after the suffering servant. To know Jesus is to become like him in his death, laying down our lives for the good of one another. Because to know Jesus is to hope in his certain return, his restoring of creation, his resurrecting our body. And so when he says, not that I've already obtained this, that is the this that he's referring to. Make sense? We're all caught up. Good. He's referring to the destination that lies on the other side of the finish line, that that awaits him at the end of the journey, of of knowing Jesus in his fullness, of being fully formed into his image, truly Christ-like in every way, perfect, he says, perfect in the way that he thinks, thinking with the mind of Christ, Uh, perfect in the way that he lives, living as the hands and feet of Jesus, perfect in the way that he loves, loving like Jesus. Perfect not only in his being ontologically, but in his body. Perfect physically in his own resurrected, glorified body. And yet Paul, he, um, he humbly acknowledges he's, he's not yet already perfect. He's not yet obtained this. He has not arrived at his goal, at his desired destination. Meaning there's, there's still more to know. There's still more room to, to grow. And so what does he do? Paul says that he, that he presses on. He, he, he keeps going in his pursuit of Jesus, which sounds a lot like some of the great athletes of our day, right? Greatest basketball player of ever, ever, the GOAT is? Thank you. You're allowed to stay. If we lived in Cleveland, you could give a different answer. A wrong answer, but a different answer. Jordan, he was the greatest. Uh, Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer ever. Caitlin Clark, I was on Caitlin Clark, the greatest women's basketball player ever. Oh, did I get a hmm? What more do you need to see? I'm just saying, she's the goat. She's the goat. Here's the thing, in spite of what Jason says. While each of those athletes are, are incredibly talented, right? They're the greatest to ever have done what they do. What they also all have in common is a humility to acknowledge they still have room to grow. Kind of to Jason's point. They're not already perfect. They have humility to acknowledge they still have room to grow, and they have a hunger to grow, right? They, they, they want to improve at what they do, and so they hit the gym over and over and over again. The game ends, they hit the gym. The tournament ends, they hit the, what do you go to in golf again? Driving range. Been a long time. They press on in pursuit of their goal. And with humility to acknowledge that he's not already perfect. And with hunger to know Jesus more, to grow to be more like Jesus, Paul presses on, he says. He he keeps on going one foot in front of the other in constant pursuit of Jesus, every step drawing him closer, pressing on to make this relationship with Jesus his own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own, he says. Jesus 
made him his own. And it takes humility to acknowledge that you've not arrived at your destination yet, that there's still room to grow, that you're not yet perfect, that you didn't set out on this journey. But it also takes humility to acknowledge you didn't set out on this by your own choosing or your own doing, doesn't it? He says, I don't consider that I have made it my own. See, Paul, he, he had his sights set on an entirely different destination. And he, and he was well on his way to, to achieving it, as we saw last week. But God stepped in, didn't he? God stepped in, and he, he redirected the course of his life as he encountered Jesus on his way to Damascus, a story that we read in Acts 9. And this, this course correction, this change in destination of Paul's life, it was not of his own doing. It was not of his own choosing. It was all God's doing. God's choosing. And that's why he opens his letter saying, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And the same is true of you. The same is true of us. God began this good work in you. Jesus making you his own. God set you on a path you would never have chosen on your own. Toward a, toward a destination you could never have found on your own. But not only that, man, he's going to bring that journey to completion through his spirit working in and through you, empowering you to take that next step, arriving at your destination, not too late and not too early, but right on time at the day of Jesus Christ. Meaning every time you veer off course and find yourself lost along the way, and every time you head a different way, God will intervene, might not always be comfortable, and he'll bring you back to him. And yet in this, what we've seen in this letter is that we have an active role to play in this as well, don't we? In working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, he wrote earlier, in, in our pursuit of Jesus. And so Paul, he goes on to share how he does this, comparing his pursuit of Jesus to a long-distance runner. And he says, here's what I do. Here's, here's how I do it. He, he gives two things. And number one, he says, he says, I forget what lies behind. I forget all about it, meaning, meaning he's not distracted by all that lies behind him as he runs. He's not weighed down by his past sin. And he had a horrific past, didn't he? He had a horrific past. He was essentially a terrorist, persecuting the church, arresting, even overseeing the execution of these so-called followers of the way. But, but turning your head behind and looking back, it, it only ever slows a runner down. It slows you down. It redirects your energy back there as opposed to up here. And so often that's what we do with our past, isn't it? Turning back, looking back in regret, regretting all that we've done, wishing we had done things differently, wishing we had, we had said things differently. Looking back and regretted our past rather than learning from our past. We look back and regret of the way that we live, thinking, I should have spoken up. I should have said something. And what we're doing is we're allowing our regrets to weigh us down, to, to slow us down. They, they distract us and they divert us off course. But not Paul. 
Paul forgot what lied behind because Paul pursued Jesus with certainty, didn't he? Certain of what he had gained from Jesus in Jesus making him his own. Certain that he was forgiven. Certain that he was loved. Certain that he was accepted in spite of his horrific past. And the same is true of you, of those of us in Christ. There is no sin the love of Jesus cannot forgive. Amen? None. There is no stain the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse. Now hear me. There may very well be consequences for your sin. Financial consequences, legal consequences, relational consequences. There may be restitution that you are asked and forced to pay to others. But hear me when I say you owe no debt to God. That debt has been paid and it was paid in full. See, when you feel remorse over your sin, bringing it to Jesus, when you repent of your sin, giving it to Jesus, turning to Jesus, pursuing Jesus, knowing that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, he took on our sin, and you are forgiven. You are accepted, and you are loved, and there's no need to turn back. Paul forgot what lies behind him. But number two, he says, I strain forward to what lies ahead. He says, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Meaning, he's not distracted by all that's going on around him as he runs. He's not weighed down by his present suffering. And Paul suffered mightily for his faith. He, He would write to the Corinthians that he was imprisoned and beaten and whipped He was stoned, he was left shipwrecked, he lived in constant danger. And you gotta think that at some point when Paul's sitting there in the frozen water, he's gotta be asking like, is this really worth it? In a long distance race, there is a point um, where your body cramps up and you feel pain like you've never felt before. And what's happened is your glycogen levels have depleted. Essentially, you're, you're out of fuel. Uh, you're beyond running on fumes. And your body is waving the white flag. And it says, I am done. I don't care that there's six miles to go. And you end up doing this kind of waddle the last little bit. And so people don't show videos of them with like four to go in a marathon. You show videos with like four into the marathon when you're still going like this, not like this. And when that happens, you're asking yourself, is this worth it? And you know what the answer is? It's actually yes. I know you wanted to say no. I'm glad you didn't answer there. It's actually yes. And so you strain forward to the finish line, waddling ahead to the finish line, pressing on with each painful step towards your goal. I ran yesterday, I had a goal, I wanted to, I wanted to beat my best time. Uh, I wanted to, to do just a little bit better than that. And, and there was a prize at the end. They, they give you these cheap medals or apparently a scarf. I'm still sorry about that, you got a scarf. There was, there was a medal and not only that, there was spunky dunker donuts at the finish line, amen? But here's the thing, I knew about halfway through I was gonna beat my time. I was certain of it, even then. And so I finished that last half of the race with certainty. And Paul, Paul ran with certainty as he pursued Jesus, certain that every painful step 
was worth it because he was certain of how this journey would end, of where his path would lead, the goal of being fully formed into the image of Christ, the prize of eternity with him in a restored creation, no more suffering in a world free of straining. And the same is true of us. The same is true of you in your pursuit of Jesus. Knowing that when he called you to follow him, he didn't invite you to follow him down an easy path through a wide gate, did he? No, he called you to follow him down a very difficult path through a very narrow gate. And that means there's going to be times when it's going to be hard. There are going to be times when you are going to be doubting and questioning, wondering, is this all worth it? Because the cross that you have been asked to carry each and every day feels too heavy. And you start to think about maybe going another way, maybe about going an easier way. And it is in those moments, it is in those seasons that we need this reminder that the goal, that the prize that we are pursuing, it is worth so much more than a scarf or a medal or even the best donut you ever had. Pursuing Jesus with certainty of what lies ahead. Certainty that gets us to the finish line as God brings this journey to completion. Because Paul's pursuit of Jesus, that is the example that we have been given. That is the example that we are to follow in our own pursuit of Jesus. It says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way and and live this way, right? Pursuing Jesus, straining forward, pressing on to, to know Jesus more, to grow to be more like Jesus, not only for our own good, but for the good of others and the glory of God. And when he mentions those who are mature, he's referring to a different way of thinking about spiritual maturity what it means to be spiritually mature, to have grown, that I think we may be familiar with. It's like, how do, we, how do we track that progress? How do we measure our growth? Like, it's easy to measure growth when you're a kid, isn't it? You, did, you, did you have that wall in your house where you would go up and, and mom or dad would make that pencil mark and then you have these pencil marks all the way up and then when they go to paint the house, they can't paint that strip because you, you just can't paint over that. And then when you go to move, you're like, I, I'm going to pry this piece of wood and take it with me. That's why we didn't do that because I don't want to face that later on. But I did have a friend who was sharing how uh, they were painting their house and getting ready to sell it. And she popped that piece of wood off the kitchen wall and took it with her. But it's easy to measure if you've grown as a kid. You look at those pencil marks and you can see that they're getting higher. It's easy to measure if you've grown as a runner. You look at your new time and you see that it's gotten faster uh, it's easy to measure if you've grown, say, your social media platform. You, you look at your following. It's gotten bigger. It's easy to measure if you've grown your business. You look at the stock price. It, it's worth more. But it's not so easy to measure spiritual maturity, is it? And so what we do is we, we use the same tools the rest of the world uses to measure growth. Climbing higher, going faster, getting bigger, adding more. And the thing is, is when we make numbers the measure of maturity, we focus our efforts on things that are easy to measure, things that are easy to track. And the church starts to look more and more like a business pursuing profits than pursuing Jesus and helping people pursue Jesus and being formed into the image of Jesus. We focus on getting more people to attend what we do by doing things more people will attend. 
we expedite discipleship by making it more efficient so we can get more people through. And, and rather than leading to maturity, bigger, better, faster often leads to exhaustion, frustration, and burnout. And you seldom finish well on that approach because you seldom finish. That means we need a new approach to spiritual maturity, a new approach to helping people pursue Jesus, don't we? And that's what kind of went into our creation of of what we call the way, shameless plug on the t-shirt today. The way is a a three-year journey of spiritual growth and formation as we seek to more faithfully follow the way of Jesus. Twelve of you are finishing your second year. Another uh, 19 of you are finishing your first year. It was at least an attempt to find a new approach to this. Because see, what we, what we know is we, we need to change the way we measure spiritual maturity. Uh, Peter Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, one of the books we read in the way, he writes, success, according to scripture, is becoming the person God calls you to become and doing what God calls you to do in his way and according to his timetable. Meaning maturity is not based on what you've done and what you know. It's not based on what you're able to do and how fast you're able to do it. No, it's based on who it is you're pursuing and who it is you are becoming more like. Pursuing Jesus, more faithfully following his way in obedience to his words, becoming more like Jesus, more Christ-like in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, and especially in the way that we love. Right? Because if the command is to love, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. If the command is to love, then love should be the measure of maturity. Jesus says, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have what for one another? Love. Love. If the command is to love, then love should be the measure of maturity. A love that is not simply an emotion you feel, but a choice that you make and an action that you take for the good of one another and for the glory of God. We need to change how we measure spiritual maturity, but we also need to change how we then pursue maturity. Rather than, than getting bigger and going faster and adding more, we, we've started to take a different approach here as of late. I was asked at uh, dinner with a, with a couple a while back, uh, what, what makes your church unique? And I, I said, we're small and we're slow. He wasn't ready for that answer. On my board, I've, I've got this written down in one of my six blocks. It says, start small, go slow, and keep it simple. Start small, go slow, keep it simple. Because here's the thing, like, there's no one-size-fits-all way to systematize discipleship, to systematize spiritual maturity. We're not, we're not a factory mass-producing. And not only that, you, you, you can't expedite spiritual formation. I mean, we could have made the way a a 12-month journey instead of a three-year journey and crammed a whole lot more into a whole lot less, but like this is a type of thing that requires a slow cooker, not a microwave. Microwaves, is day after Thanksgiving. You know my theology of leftovers. They're repulsive. I know, it's okay to feel sad for me, but like, did you all put your mashed potatoes and gravy into the microwave on Friday and eat that goo? Yay. Ooh, and on and now over your leftovers. Slow cooker is where it's at, amen? No, not all on board with me there. That's okay. 
told you the process is slow. You'll get there. Oh, and this means it, it requires us meeting people where they're at. Not where we're at, but where they're at. Getting to know who they are, getting to know their story. It involves creating an environment where people can encounter Jesus and know who he is, know why he came, and know why that matters to him. It means going at a safe and sustainable pace as they get their feet under them, as they begin to reorient their life in pursuit of Jesus, growing to be more like him. And in this type of growth, it is incredibly slow, and for some it may be too slow. But the maturity begins to run deep. And this type of growth, it's not measured in days, it's measured in decades. And so think back for a second. Say you pulled up um, Facebook today and it showed you memories and you looked up 10 years ago. The weekend after Thanksgiving of 2013, I want you to think back to that version of yourself. While you're thinking, like, as a church, as Redemption, we were, uh, we were meeting in Prospect High School at the time. Like, that was like two whole addresses ago. Some of you, you were in a different church. Some of you were in a different state. Some of you may not have even been following Jesus. Some of those downstairs, they weren't even born. They weren't even thought of yet. Y'all got that image in your head of yourself 10 years ago? You know what I'm pretty certain is true of each and every one of you in that version? You're not the same person you were then. You've grown. You've matured. Maybe not as much as you wanted. Maybe not as much as mama wanted. And you're becoming more and more like Jesus. If I asked you to think back to yesterday or I asked you to think back to Thursday in that conversation you had at the end of Thanksgiving meal, which caused somebody to storm out of the room a little quickly, I don't see as much growth between Thursday and today. But a decade ago and today we do, don't we? says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And he says, and if in anything you think otherwise, guess what? God's going to reveal that to you also. I told you, God will intervene when he needs to, won't he? That's why I love that phrase, but God, when you come to it in scripture. And he's speaking to us here, I think, both individually and collectively of how we view ourselves and how we view others. And so individually, uh, this should change the way that we view our own spiritual growth and maturity. On one side of the spectrum, if you think you have arrived, if you think you have matured, that there is nothing left for you to learn, you are simply here to impart your wisdom on others, and they should be grateful for your presence. Uh, every sermon you listen to, every book you read, you know what? You know who that would have been good for? Someone other than you. If that's you, then God will reveal that to you, and he'll humble you, letting you know you're... You've not already obtained this. You've not yet arrived. You are not already perfect. The person next to you is also revealing that to you with a little nudge in your ribs. That's the Holy Spirit working in and through us. But on the other side, what I know to be true of some of you that are here this morning is that you think you're behind. You, you feel like you're always falling, you're always failing, and you expect it to be further along than you were by now. You thought you would know more. You thought you would be able to do more. You thought your faith would be stronger, less questions, less doubts. If, if that's you, then uh, God will reveal that to you also by encouraging you. Encouraging you in your pursuit of Jesus, helping you take that next step, whatever that is. 
But also collectively, this should collectively change how we view the spiritual growth and maturity of others. Because back over here, if you think that others are behind and you're disappointed that they're not dedicated enough, that they're not hungry enough, you're frustrated that they're not doing enough, that they're not going fast enough, God will reveal that to you by humbling you. Revealing how we often impose our timeline on others, don't we? Rather than trusting in his. Reminding us of how long our own growth and maturity took. You know, it took me five years to figure this thing out. Why don't you have it figured out in five minutes? I told it to you once. I had like a 30-second point in a sermon one Sunday about it. That wasn't enough? Side note, it's not. It would remind you of how slow your growth was, is, how slowly you have matured. Because here's the thing, like this journey is hard enough as it is, isn't it? Without everyone coming down hard on you, discouraging you, and shaming you. But on the other side, if you think you're, everyone else is always ahead and you're always behind, everyone else is growing more, they're growing, maturing faster, then, man, let God reveal that to you by encouraging you and reminding you that pursuing Jesus isn't a competition. Amen? This ain't a competition. We're not competing against anyone else, so there's no need to compare yourself to anyone else. Because here's the thing. While we're all on the same journey, we all start at different places and we are all going at different paces. Because while we're all pointed in the same direction toward the same destination, we all started at different times. We all started in different locations, having had different experiences, having faced different challenges. And so wherever you are in your pursuit of Jesus right now, hear what Paul says. He says, let us hold true and let us live up to what we have already obtained, continuing the progress we've made, encouraged by how far we have come and humbled by how far we have yet to go. Not competing against each other, not comparing ourselves with each other, but instead imitating those who are faithfully following the way of Jesus by keeping our eyes on those who walk according to the example we have in them. By looking up to those who have gone before us, following in their faithfulness, modeling their obedience. An example that I've tried to imitate as of late in my own pursuit of Jesus, especially as a pastor, and this should come as not much of a surprise, is, is Eugene Peterson. Because Peterson did something that has become, unfortunately, very uncommon for pastors as of late. He did two things. He loved well, and he finished well. And so there's this picture of him that sits in my study on the opposite side of my desk next to his books, and he's facing me. He's, he's looking over me. He's kind of like a spiritual grandfather there with me next to a, a picture of Henry Nouwen and, and Tim Keller. Eugene, uh, he, um, he was a runner. Uh, he qualified for the Boston Marathon in 1985 at the age of 53, which means at 53 years old, he ran a three-minute, 20-second marathon to get in. That's something where you go, wow, just in case you weren't sure. I get that it's not a two-hour world record, but 53. He's, uh, he is the grandparent that was passing everybody that that article was about, apparently. And it was following his example, reading uh, his memoir, his autobiography, or his biography, letters that he had written to his son, who is a pastor. It was following his example that led to the idea of starting small. 
Eugene was never afraid to try new things. Uh, we, had this, we have this phrase here, try it before you buy it. Uh, he was never afraid to experiment. Our phrase, experiment, evaluate, and evolve. But not only that, he didn't just start small, he kept it small. He believed that a church should be no larger than the number of names a pastor can remember. And so for him, that was like 300. Eugene Peterson, the writer of countless books, including The Message, and he pastored a church of less than 300 people in the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. Starting small, following his examples where we got going slow, he was, he was never in a hurry. He was trying to find a pace that was sustainable, not only for him, but for his family and for his church family. And mind you, he found that pace by going a bit too fast at times. Himself paying the price, his family paying the price at times, but he, he kept growing. And I think it was his imperfections that drew me to him the most. Side note, the keeping simple part, that was just the logical third step. We needed to have three. A list of two just doesn't make sense. There needed to be three. And there's other examples of people that I know personally. I never met Eugene Peterson. Um, other pastors other than men and women. I think of Dan and Colette sitting right there. That's two people that I want to follow after, that I want to follow the example and imitate. Who's your example? Who, who's in your life that you see modeling a faithfulness that you want to follow after, that you, that you look up to? Who do you see in your life pursuing Jesus that you want to follow after? Who, whose life is worthy of imitation? And Paul's saying we, we need examples to follow after. We can't do this on our own. We're going to get lost on the way if we go alone. We need examples of those who have gone before us to show us the way for us to follow after because as we look ahead, what we see is that there is a choice between two very different paths that lead to two very different destinations, two different pursuits, two different ways of living. And he describes the first in verse 18, and this way is a path of destruction. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory and the shame with minds set on earthly things. Given the emotion that he acknowledges that he's writing this with, I can only imagine that he's writing about people that he knew, people that he taught, people he, he spent time with, that he broke bread with, people that may very well claim to be Christians because of something that they did, thinking that they arrived, thinking that they were already perfect, thinking that they obtained their own salvation. They made Jesus their own rather than Jesus making him their own. Rather than denying themselves and taking up their cross, they denied their need for a Savior and all that he accomplished on the cross. Avoiding suffering rather than sharing in Christ's suffering. Living for themselves rather than dying for themselves and living for the good of one another and the glory of God. I can only imagine that they were the many that Jesus said would choose the easy path and go through the wide gate. Their end is their destruction. That is where that path leads. Their God is their belly because rather than pursuing Jesus and desiring what he desires, they were pursuing whatever satisfied their own desires. They glory in their shame, taking pride in what they should have been ashamed of, their minds set on earthly things, on their own good rather than the good of others. And as I was reading this again yesterday, I couldn't help but wonder if Paul... 
if Paul might tearfully write the same thing to the Western Evangelical Church today. Have we become an enemy of the cross of Christ rather than living as his body, as his hands and feet? Living for our own good and pursuing our own glory rather than the good of others and the glory of God? Because that's what it means to be an enemy of Christ, an enemy of the cross. And not only that, it is a sign that we view our citizenship as here. And that we view our allegiance to whoever provide us with the earthly things we desire. We're going to see that next fall. But our citizenship is not here, is it? Our citizenship is in heaven, amen? Our citizenship is not in Rome, like those in Philippi, a Roman colony, something they were proud of. Our citizenship's not in Rome. Our citizenship's not in Babylon. Our citizenship's not even here in the United States. No, because we are citizens of a kingdom that has arrived, but not yet in full. Our allegiance given to the king who ushered in this kingdom and who reigns today, not from an earthly throne, but from a heavenly throne. And from it, he says, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return and will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, attaining our own resurrection, fully formed into the image of the one that we have spent our entire life pursuing. This is a path that leads to glory, all of creation fully restored by the power that enables the one who created all things to subject all things to himself. Amen. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I hope you know I love, and uh, I don't really have to long for because I'm here with you, but Paul, he longed to return to Philippi. My joy and my crown, he writes, wherever you are in your journey, wherever you are in your pursuit of Jesus, whether you have been following for decades or for days, whether it feels like you are making progress, ticking off those miles, or you feel like you have fallen behind, especially if you were here this morning and you are tired and you are exhausted, hear his encouragement to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved, confident in the one you are pursuing, the one who began this good work in you, who made you his own, the one who will see this journey through to completion, keeping you as his own, the one in whose image you are being formed and whose way we are following and whose words we are obeying, the only one worthy of pursuing. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.